Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in relationship, we grow in discipleship, and we grow in Jesus Christ. In this series, we enter a study of the letter to the Hebrews. In this study, we see how Jesus is better. He is the better revelation. He is the better priest. He is the better sacrificed. He is the better king. He brings the better covenant. So we hope that you join us as we grow together and learn more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Subscribe so that you don't miss a single Lord's Day sermon. We're picking up in our study in Hebrews. It's been quite amazing even going through the holiday, celebrating the Incarnation, which we've been studying in Sunday school, just by the way things fell, just what it means for the Son to have become man in our ongoing study, Discovering the Glorious Gospel. And really, whenever we are studying Hebrews, our theology, our doctrine, everything seems to be escalating. So if you're one who has missed or has not been a part of this, you'll have to forgive us. The writer has spent a great deal of time building a strong foundation upon which to put everything that we're discussing today. Uh, This morning, the title of the sermon, if there is to be one, is A Perfect Intercessor. A Perfect Intercessor. Now we know the general theme, or at least one of the themes of the book of Hebrews that has come out and has been quite prevalent is that Jesus is better. He's the better everything. He's, the, the, he's better than the angels. He is the uh, better priest. The, he brings in the better covenant. We'll find he's the better king. He, he's... Better than everything. Jesus is better. That's the overarching message that we have repeated each week. Last week we saw really what felt like an introductory statement, which is understandable because the writer of Hebrews is going deeper and deeper into this theology that he is building. It is something that he is cautioning them, but he's wanting them to have a rich theology so that they're not easily blown to and fro with every wind of doctrine. He wants them well established in the Word of God and all that He has set out to do through His Son, Jesus Christ, who He introduces the letter, is is the one that He speaks to us through in these last days in His Son, the brightness or radiance of His glory. This morning we're focusing on Chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. And for our good, it's, uh, he repeats 
some of those things that we touched on last week or that maybe he has introduced as he's growing and adding on to that which he's already discussed. So if you've had an opportunity to turn there in your copy of God's Word, I welcome you to stand so that we honor the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Still speaking of Christ, he says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we are gathered this morning that we might come to know something more of you. Lord, in truth, we want to meet with you in the text. Lord, I pray that every saint here experiences your presence this morning. Lord, of the saints here, there are many who have labored long and desire to know you more for their strength. Lord, there are those here who are weak and are undergoing trials of various kinds. And Lord, they need you that they might be sustained and endure for the next moment that you will lead them to. And Lord, surely there are some here who do not yet know you. We pray that they would encounter the risen Christ as it is Him of whom we speak this morning, Lord, that You would have the glory, that You would become all in all, and that You would be pleased in our worship as we gather here at New Life Baptist. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. This morning, I haven't included the customary outline that maybe you have grown used to, but I hope you find it easy to follow along as we just want to walk through this text. Christ has really taken center stage He's come into full view for the writer of Hebrews. He's discussed a number of things and he's made clear that this God-man is the one upon whom we ought to be focused. Last week that came in the way of viewing him as a son, as a priest, 
and as a king. Now, I would like for you to keep those uh, offices, if you will, ready in your mind. I want you to understand how Christ fills those offices even today in what we're discussing, viewing him as this perfect intercessor. The argument is goes something like this, that Christ is the great high priest. He's the better great high priest. He is the one to whom all of the high priests in the past have pointed to because only he fills that office to its fullest because he is that son, that priest, and that king. So the writer of Hebrews continues his discourse and he's building on all that has already been said. But we'll notice he continues to develop the character of the great high priest that he's talking about. You see, too often, too many people theorize their religious beliefs. They make them arbitrary for debate or optional as if uh, it is a way that you might choose to decorate your house. Far too often, even those who are zealous for learning can become puffed up in their trivial pursuit of knowledge yet they lack the wisdom that the writer of Hebrews wants to impart to us in what we've read this morning. You see, he's not having some arbitrary discussion. He's not filling your minds with useless knowledge. He's really trying to draw you before the throne of grace that you might know this Savior whom God has sent. Listen to the nature of our Savior. He's walked us before the throne. He said, here is this Christ, this Son, this priest, and this King. But here is how you need to view Him. The writer of Hebrews says, who, this priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, He is the one in the days of His flesh that offered up prayers and supplications with strong, with loud cries and tears. You need to understand this intercession that the Son is making. Last week, we give reference to the high priestly prayer in viewing Christ as the high priest. That's recorded for you in John chapter 17. I ask that you just make a note of that. I won't read it in full the way that I did last week, but you do need to revisit that. Christ prayed in this high priestly prayer. We know this is moments before he was taken captive and before he was betrayed by one of the apostles and he would undergo all of that great passion where he was beat and scorned and, and mocked and hung upon the cross. 
And we see him intercede, not just for his own ministry, but for all of his apostles, for all of those who followed, and he even made explicit mention of those who would come after. He says those who who aren't even here, but those who will eventually believe because of the word of the apostles. I pray for them too. He's the great high priest. He intercedes for even those in the generation to come. He's a priest who can minister in an era that's not even his own. And yet it is his own. Because he's the one who has risen and intercedes even now before the Father. But even if you go back and read that high priestly prayer and you think, well, man, this is wonderful. Yeah, he's a priest. Surely I can see how this Jesus has interceded for me. But that doesn't come to the gist of what the author of Hebrews wants you to understand. He's already addressed the fact that this Jesus is the great and better high priest. He wants you to see the nature of his heart in the way that he's praying for you. Would you take some time this week and read some scripture and understand what comes before that high priestly prayer and perhaps what comes after? You see the whole course of events that leads up to that high priestly prayer is is this pattern to where Jesus has been teaching in parables and his apostles are growing weary as as they continually have to interpret all of these things through parables and yet they recognize that his teaching is growing more somber For where Jesus is teaching in the way that where before his hour has not yet come, now he begins speaking in a way that the hour is near at hand. The hour of my glory is before us. He even comes to say certain very difficult things where he says there's a a great hour of tribulation. There's something difficult that's coming. He tells even his apostles that they will, the world will hate you. It will hate you because it hates me and you will watch me endure great suffering. So even whenever his apostles, if you're reading through John 15 and then 16 that comes before John 17 where that high priestly prayer is, you would see they get some sort of relief saying, well, Christ, now you're speaking to us, not in parables. Now you're talking clearly. He says, look, I was sent from God and I was sent on your behalf. And they're saying, yeah, I think I get it. I don't have to interpret this. This is straight talk. And even in that moment where it seems they should be relieved because he's speaking so clearly, he said, now, now do you believe? There is a tribulation coming. Don't you see? This is the heart of the Savior 
who he knows the purpose for which he was sent, and he cries out on behalf of the apostles, knowing that each one of them, but perhaps one, would be killed for his name. He knows the cup of God's wrath that he's fixing to have to drink from. Remember the teaching whenever he has the apostles that come and say, well, let us sit at your right hand and at your left. And he says, are you even able to drink from the cup from which I drink, knowing this moment that lies ahead of them? They will die for his name. He knows himself, the man, this God man who himself prayed, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He prays for the saints, for the apostles who also would die for his name. And he prays also for them who would believe because of the testimony of the apostles who would die for his name. And with weeping, he prays for them in his hour of suffering. He prays for you, saints. Listen, Luke, in Luke 22, 44, Luke records the moments of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to him being taken captive. And Luke says of our Savior in these moments of prayer that Hebrews records for us in his, in his ministry of flesh that he, he gave prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears. Luke records this, that his sweat as Christ, who was sweating profusely now within his, his uh, agony in his hour of prayer, that his sweat became like drops of blood. This is a condition called hematidrosis, which is an extremely rare condition when someone is under such extreme duress and anxiety that their blood vessels will become inflamed and open to their pores that they would sweat blood through undamaged skin that leaves them prone to easy bruising and pain to the lightest touch. Which means everything that would follow whenever he was seized on the arm by the, by the centurions or the soldiers or whenever he packed something on uh, the cross on his back or whenever he was beaten within inches of his life or whenever he hung on the cross that it wasn't even it wasn't even from the strength of conditioned and calloused skin it was from the weakest condition that's rare among men and wasn't even known by many that he would suffer these things 
It was that level of anxiety that would produce in him such rare and grotesque symptoms that he interceded for the likes of you. Do you get what the author of Hebrews is trying to say now? The author reminds us of this full ministry that Christ has fulfilled for us who believe. That alone, friends, it edifies us in a number of ways. The most obvious is in learning the thoroughgoing way in which Christ ministered for our sakes. If this is true, if this is what Christ so labored and set himself to in this ministry of loud cries and prayers and supplications with tears, does that strike you as a ministry or as a gospel that is optional? or that is arbitrary? Are you not moved to faithfulness because of His great faithfulness? This is the love of the Savior for all that He saves. Why, why is it that the author of Hebrews, he's already spoken long and he'll speak even longer because I, re, I reminded you before, this, this con, convincing letter, this argument concerning Christ as a high priest, it goes through like chapter 10. We're going to be talking a lot about this, but why does he stop? Why does he say that he, he cried out with prayers and supplications, with loud cries and with tears to you? Why is that so important? I think it's because the writer of Hebrews knows that the one who knows the supplications of our Christ cannot shrug his shoulders and say, oh well, or to each their own. The Lord knows that none of us here are perfect. The Lord knows that each one of us here are weak. The Lord knows that every one of us was, was dead in our trespasses and we come a sinner. There's no, there's no move of perfection that, that He expects apart from His work in you. But, but listen, don't, don't mistake your, your weakness for uh, your impurity or lethargy as a Christian. Even in that hour of prayer, we see the examples of the apostles who were closest and nearest and dearest to Christ. Those who, who were mentioned even first before us in His own prayers and who were with Him in His hour of great supplication. And we see them, they're, they're weak. They can't even continue on. And if you read the Gospels, you read that they were wearied. They were fatigued 
because of sorrow. Have you ever been there, Christian? Have you ever cried yourself to sleep? Have you ever been that place? Have you ever been to a place where you have wept so that you couldn't weep anymore? To where you were completely emotionally exhausted, to where you were overcome and you had you passed out without making it to the bed. They were wearied because of their sorrow. What it does not say is that they fell asleep because of apathy. It wasn't as if they, they stayed all night out in the garden just, just a little ways apart from the Christ who was sweating droplets of blood just and they didn't care or they grew bored. That is not what the Scriptures say. I fear too many in our day have grown cold with apathy. And in our arrogance have said, even the apostles, they grew weary. You know, God doesn't expect that. He sweated droplets of blood and prayer and tears on your behalf. How could you say such a thing? The writer of Hebrews knows this intercess, intercession of Christ it shows us the relationship of the Son to the Father. You see, it wasn't just merely tears and crying out that did the trick. He cried out this way to the One that was able to save Him from death and He was heard and He was feared Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience. He was crying out to the Father. You see, all of this supplication you have to recognize what great love moves our Lord to cry out to the one he knows is sure to save. I think of the child who always jumps without regard for the fall. I've got one of those in my household. She always expects me to catch her. And one day she didn't jump because she was afraid what would happen. What is it like to have a father to know that he'll always be there?
There is no doubt in the Father with the Son. He cries out to the one with whom he has shared this divine love from eternity past. Christian, the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that your salvation and your protection, Christian, it rests not on you, but on the answered prayers of the one most faithful who made supplication with loud cries and tears on your behalf, who was his own son. The heavenly father will not forsake his heavenly eternally begotten son. The text says he prayed to the one who was able to save him. And he was heard. He was heard because he feared or because uh, he, he obeyed. We read in this intercession of Christ's active obedience. Though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Paul says in Philippians 2 that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you imagine the lawgiver learning to obey the law that he had given Why? Why does this Christ learn obedience in this way? Why is that important? Because this is the active righteousness that he would impute to you, his beloved. This makes him the effective priest. He does not leave you a blank slate cleansed of sin and in, in now on this neutral ground so that you might follow him. But he makes you a pure new creation. One who has his righteousness he learned the obedience. He actively obeyed. He keeps and he fulfills the law so that whenever you come before God, it's not one who is empty. It's not one who is blank. It's not one who is neutral. It's one who has the righteousness of Christ. It's because of Christ that you're declared righteous. That's the word justification. It's because of Christ that he makes you to be righteous. 
through this ongoing work of His Spirit. That's the word sanctification. And it is in Him that you are made perfect in righteousness at His coming. That is the word that we see as glorification. Do not stumble over this claim where we read of Christ in our passage. He was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect became the author of our eternal salvation. One might ask, what does that mean to become perfect? Was he not perfect? Was he imperfect? Did he achieve perfection? The word here is teleotheis. It has a root which is telos. I don't know, maybe you've heard of this, but that means the end, the purpose, the completion of a thing. He's brought it to its just and intended end and being made perfect and, and being completed, having done or finished these things. We read of, the, of our Christ as He hung on the cross who preached to those who looked upon Him and to us in His written word, it is finished. This is what it means to be made perfect, that there is nothing left. All of our salvation rests in this one. Hebrews doesn't give us anyone else to look at. This book doesn't tell us, it's made clear not to look at the angels, but to look to Christ. Not to look at the priests of old, but to look at Christ. There is no one else. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. That when all these things are made complete, are made perfect, are brought to their end, their telos, he became to all that heard or obeyed him the author of eternal salvation. We read again this second introduction. So now you know that the author is, is, well, he's fixing to lay it on us. Last week was the first time that he's reintroduced this name to us of Melchizedek, that he's this, that God has appointed him in, in the Psalms, this one, this priest after the order of Melchizedek. He quoted that. Now, he begins the reasoning. He was called the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he's drawing that in and he's going to show you where he's going with that. But this designation of Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek labels Christ as not merely a high priest but as a priest king. 
Melchizedek. I'm going to give you just a little bit because in the coming weeks, we'll be diving into this ministry, this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. But just so that you know, Melchizedek was called the king of Salem. He was a king. You hear Salem uh, is might be associated with what would later be Jerusalem. Salem or Shalom means peace. Melchizedek, this king of Salem, was called a priest of the Most High God. He brought out bread and wine after the victory of Abraham over his enemies. And Abraham offered a tenth of everything to him. The name Melchizedek has been one that has really piqued a lot of interest. His name itself means king of righteousness. Ironically, we read of the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 last week. We referenced this this child who would be born, this son who would be given, this government who would be on his shoulders, and he would be called, among other things, Most High God, Wonderful Counselor, and Prince of Peace. Yet another heavenly dignitary of this shalom or peace. What's clear is that Christ is fulfilling something far greater than the Mosaic Covenant. The ministry of Christ completes, or that He completes and fulfills, it reaches far back before Moses, before Abraham, I would say before Melchizedek, it reaches back to accomplish what it set out to do even from the fall of the very first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. The priesthood Christ fills toward God is after an older order that is not dependent on the ministry of men. Dear Christians, the writer of Hebrews cautions us moving forward. If you would look ahead a couple of verses from what we read, of this we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. The writer of Hebrews cautions us that some of this is difficult to explain and yet it is our task. We are called to know more of this Christ. You may think, I've heard this, I get it, I know Christ came, lived, and, 
and, and died and was buried and that he rose again. End of story. Now I'm a Christian. Let's move on to other things. Wrong. The writer of Hebrews insists that we are called to handle the hard things. That we must be the people who are precise in doctrine. How else will our study be beneficial to our children or to our unbelieving spouses or to our sinful co-workers if we are not this precise, if we don't know the answers to these questions. I don't make a habit of reading many of our... uh, more, how should I say this, translations that take more liberties. But we could say that the writer of Hebrews says, buckle your seatbelts. Learn more of this Christ. Dig in, stretch your thinking. As we continue, as if some of you should choose to return, I find it necessary to appeal to you to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That way as we study, because we've only just begun what the writer wants to tell us concerning this this priesthood after the order of a priest king and why that is so significant. But let us take care so that we might grow in fellowship, knowledge, and grace. That we might faithfully handle this word of His truth. That we might faithfully deliver it in our homes and in our communities without allowing it to be twisted, neglected, or misunderstood. For that we will need His help. So let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you. We are thankful for this ongoing ministry of the Son. We are thankful for your abiding Spirit. For Lord alone, I I feel myself unworthy of what we have just heard spoken of. And yet, God, we can depend upon you because of who you are and what you have done, who your son is, and what you have sent him to do, and what he has ensured will be accomplished by your spirit. God, we read elsewhere that your spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words and that the sun remains still at the right hand interceding on our behalf. Let that be the case this morning. 
Lord, that we could go on. Lord, that you would grant us repentance. That you would forgive the ways where we have smeared the name of Christ or treated it as if it was ordinary or that his ministry was something other than supernatural and spectacular and majestic. Lord, as we look forward to what you will teach us in the coming days and weeks, Lord, even as we prepare our hearts for a special time of prayer this evening, we rely upon you as our Prince of Peace and our mighty God and wonderful Counselor in whom our soul rests. Lord, we ask you draw us near. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at New Life Baptist Preaching. We hope that you join us each Lord's Day in this study of the letter of Hebrews where we learn Jesus is better. Remember to subscribe so that you don't miss any sermon.